Hello and welcome to Merlin Leadership Unplugged. I am your host, Jana Papa, and I am the Group Head of Leadership Development here at Merlin Entertainments. Merlin Leadership Unplugged is a podcast that looks to highlight and celebrate the human behind the leader and all of their inspiring stories. On today's episode of Merlin Leadership Unplugged, I have the great pleasure of chatting to Marie Collins, who has had the most amazing, interesting, diverse career journey in Merlin and who I think will inspire many female leaders around the world. Marie has lived and worked in the UK and the US and Asia Pacific and is truly passionate about oceans, conservation and everything we do in Merlin to support and to lead on those purposes. Enjoy. Welcome Thank to you. Merlin Leadership Unplugged. Thank you. All the way live from California. I never thought in my wildest dream I'll be doing this, but hey, here I am. Um, I want to start with the post that I saw on LinkedIn mm. about you celebrating 15 years in this magical business. Um, do you remember your day one? It's hard to remember day one exactly, but the first few months I yeah. absolutely do. Yeah, and 2008. 2008. Mm -hmm. The world was a different place. It was. A couple of presidents ago and all that. It uh, was. What, what did you do that first day, week, month that you can remember? What was your job then? Well, we were six months out from opening our Sea Life Center. We were actually meant to open that summer. So we were preparing the building and trying to the get everything ready. here. Correct. The mm -hmm. Sea Life at Legoland, California. So I was the first aquarist hired. So the first biologist in all of North America, which wow. was kind of exciting. That's my claim to fame. The first ever person in that job role. There was a small team of us there for opening. Um, and those memories, they're fantastic. We've had, yeah, we had a lot of fun. So you, you started in that role and then you, you had to like prep it, open it, etc. Yeah. Um, how, how was that when you build something from scratch mm. and you have to, you know, launch yeah. it to the world? Yeah. And then they come in and you welcome them. How was that process? Talk to me about that. In the moment, it, it can be a little bit stressful. Mm. There's a lot of moving parts. But wow. the time to prepare and open, I mean, I'll never forget it. The colleagues, you know, the connections that I made with those guys were still very close friends. Wow. You know, the 10 or so people we had succumbents come from all around the world. So it was such a great opportunity. I mean, you just learn exponentially, you know, all the experience and skills I had before that for several years of working as a biologist was nothing to prepare, you know, to prepare me for the work that we had ahead of us, but it was really exciting, so. So you've trained as a marine biologist. Because yeah. I, I, I'm always wondering, like, what does it take to be a curator, an aquarist? Like, what kind of background do I need yeah. to have? If somebody's listening to this and they think, yeah. oh, actually, that's a career I would really like to go mm. into. Tell me about your journey to that first job in that first sea life here. My journey. So I do have a degree in biology with a concentration in marine science. Mm -hmm. So. I spent four years at a university studying biology and zoology, and I lived on boats in the summer and took biological horrible. zoology classes. Super fun. I'll never forget it in wow. my 20s, so that was great. Um, I also later on received my master's degree in zoo and aquarium leadership with a conservation education specialization. So very specific to what I do exactly yeah. now to this day. Um, I studied octopus in an octopus lab, a cephalopod lab. So cephalopods are octopus, cuttlefish, squid, and nautilus. 
So I did that for several years. Wow. Published a few papers. From a research point of view. Correct. For the rest of the community to learn Correct. from. Correct. Yeah, I would literally um, study the behavior of octopus, okay. California mudflat octopus. And this was all done on the East Coast in Pennsylvania. So I'm from the East Coast and not from California originally, which is kind of cool because we weren't near the ocean and we yeah. had an octopus lab at our university. So, What got you so passionate about marine biology, the animals, understanding them, researching them, mm -hmm. learning about them. It's it's not it's not something you've just kind of rocked up and did what it's a true passion of yours, isn't yeah, it? It is. What it is. what got you so passionate about it? What, you know, it's interesting because like I said, I grew up in this rural yeah. Pennsylvania landscape, not yeah. near the ocean, but every single summer we would go down to the eastern shore and we would okay. spend time at the ocean. And my parents could not get me out of that ocean. I was just super intrigued. I always have loved nature. I've always loved animals. And ever since I can remember, I only wanted to be two things, a veterinarian or a marine biologist, which was quite, very quite funny, very yeah. specific. I really didn't think I would have any other path. And at the time, I didn't even know that you could become an aquatic veterinarian. And now to this day, I get to work with aquatic veterinarians, which is even more exciting. So it was, it was just the love you, you had from your kind of summer holidays as a family. It was. And it then developed into your academic exactly. route and your choice. And now your job of 15 years. All the experience and all the people that I met along the way, my internships, um, my internship at the National Aquarium in Baltimore. I worked with octopus as well. Um, I was diving. I got my dive certification when I was in my early 20s. Wow. So all of these experiences just like led me to where I am. And I've been doing this for about 20 years now, working at nonprofits and for-profits. And just had my 15 year anniversary, like which, you said, it's with Merlin. 15, I mean, the amount of times that has happened in 15 years, mm -hmm. If you think throughout that journey, and how many sea lives have you worked in? I have directly worked with 47 wow. of our over 55 aquariums over the last 15 years. That's around the world, right? Yes, so around the world. Tell me about some of the geographies, places mm -hmm. you have been living, working. Mm -hmm. You know, I've had so many opportunities. It's been really, really great. So in North America alone, I've helped to open five of our sea life centers here um, and been involved in quarantining the animals, you know, getting the building ready, helping on various projects. I moved to the UK for two years and I had a secondment opportunity to be head of marine programs and engagement for wow. our CWE division. So I work for CWE now, Conservation Welfare and Engagement mm -hmm. is that acronym. And I had an opportunity to oversee 36 of our sea life centers in 13 countries in Europe. I was sent on secondment to help open our sea life in Nagoya. So we actually had a deep sea adventure there before mm -hmm. we built the sea life. And I went over there in 2018 as well to help. So I've done projects on three continents and have traveled personally as well to the other continents I've been to. I was telling you actually when we just met yesterday yeah. that I've traveled to six of the seven continents so far. So, so it's just which one left? Antarctica. <laughs> we'll see for 2024. <laughs> is that is that a target for 2024? It is a target. I was trying to go to all continents before the age of 40. I'm kind of over that, but it's I think okay. the COVID years can be deducted. So a hundred percent. I'm yeah. I'm of that logic of we didn't really celebrate birthdays yeah. during COVID. So absolutely. So you've so, got two years. To two go. years, maybe three. We'll see. <laughs> Depending on when COVID so, started and ended. Exactly. It's a fascinating career journey. Mm. And I hear 
a lot of what you described around secondment opportunities and mm. grabbing it and just kind of, you know, diving into the deep end and, and not being afraid. And do you think that's part of that huge opportunity and development to kind of Absolutely. go go at it and, and just jump in? Absolutely. And I understand that some people feel like they can't do secondment. Some of these opportunities are two years long, but mm. you could take a two week secondment. There's opportunities all around mm. Maryland. If you're willing to just take a little bit of time, sometimes it can be a bit scary mm. to jump into a role like that, especially in another culture. I had a lot of mentors support me um, in the decisions that I've made to this day. Our senior leadership here um, has been fantastic in supporting me. I still have a multifaceted role. So, you know, Merlin has great opportunities. I would definitely recommend being a mentor or a mentee to others. And those mentors that really supported your growth and your journey, what are some of the things that they, they told you, they advised you, they, they shared with you that mm -hmm. you want to share with our listeners mm -hmm. and, and viewers? You know, it's I like when, would like to be vulnerable sometimes in the space because I tend to come off as quite a strong, assertive personality. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's really scary to take a jump. And sometimes mm -hmm. you need to take a strategic risk. You really need to think about what you want to do in three to five years mm -hmm. and what these opportunities can get you. Um, and increasing your network, especially within Merlin, is huge. It makes a big impact on your career. Um, so for those that are willing to take some small risks, it really does pay off. Um, and like I say, just having some strong female supports throughout my years in Merlin has been just instrumental in the success and them just helping to push me to progress further. I think a lot of times as women, we look at a job description, we mm -hmm. think, you know what, I don't check all the boxes. I'm mm -hmm. not quite prepared. I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't check all the boxes and they're never going to hire me. And whereas men seem to just apply for roles that maybe they're not um, <laughs> fully qualified for. Yeah. And I took, you know, I took a few steps in times where I didn't think maybe I was ready, but my, my mentors and my, my previous leaders pushed me into that. So it's and been great. How did it feel when you're, you're kind of subconscious, your thoughts were, I'm not quite ready. I don't tick all the boxes, mm -hmm. but I have some real strong support and people really believing in me, yeah. truly, authentically believing in me. Day one, yeah, you're in that role that you didn't feel you were quite ready for it. Yeah, what what were kind of some of the emotions that you had to work through and process? Yeah. No, it it can be really quite scary. It really can. Um, but like I said, just having a support network. You know, and just to like push through that vulnerability, being transparent with mm. others. I don't, I'm always genuine and authentically who I am, asking for help if I need it, you know. I can't possibly know everything about all the things, you know. Nobody just enough about what we need to do, yeah. but it's tough sometimes in a specialist role. Yeah. Sometimes you can be expected to, you know, know all the things. But what's great about a network and resources is that I always have someone that I can call upon for help or just to discuss and collaborate with. So it's been key. It, 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 keep, it, it sounds like it's your fuel, doesn't it, to mm -hmm. have that Absolutely. Um, safety net of people around Absolutely. you. Absolutely. I collect people around yeah. me internally within my career and externally yeah. from Merlin um, within the zoo and aquarium industry. And uh, it's super important to have that web. So when I do a connection or networking chart, it's quite cool to see who I work with. Um, and I love an analytic, you know, Outlook just told me that I collaborate with 110 people each month on a, on a regular basis, which is kind of cool. That's a lot of people. amazing. Yeah, it's really quite cool. So that's, that's amazing. And I, and I love how 
you've kind of taken that learning and you incorporated into into what you do. I Rob Hicks was in my senior leader induction a couple of weeks ago, and one of the attendees asked him um, if you had to be any ocean animal and that animal would reflect your leadership style, which one would you be? Mm-hmm. And he chose the octopus mm-hmm. for a number of reasons that he explained, but you've got vast knowledge in this area. So if I had to ask that question from you, which one would uh, you pick? I don't want to steal his answer, but <laughs> cephalopods and octopus are my favorite. I think people Is would... it because of the intelligence? Because I know Some... they're very intelligent. That could be one area, but that's not what I would initially highlight for myself. It's funny. People might think I'm a bit of a shark. <laughs> um, I always identified with a shark, but I'm really not. I'm a little bit more empathetic. But if I would identify with an octopus just for a few reasons, just the ability to kind of transform um, and adapt, I can do that quite quickly, um, connecting with people, changing depending on who I'm speaking with, um, whether it's my direct team or the business um, and kind of shift. But still keeping my authenticity and genuine self in mind. Um, Octopus can manipulate all eight of their arms independently of one another, so they can multitask. I think I can multitask pretty well. So they can do eight different things at the same time. If we're kind of comparing it to leadership and human traits, right? Um, So yeah, I think that I could definitely, I I morph and I kind of wear my heart on my sleeve and I show my mood and octopuses do that as well. Their chromatophores, their pigments change instantaneously. So the the color color changes. And their skin texture, their papillae, sometimes they have bumpy skin, sometimes it's smooth. So they'll quite quickly flash depending on their color and show you what their mood is. So So what's the color when they're happy? Um, Well, happy is an interesting one. We can't Uh really anthropomorphize. We can't give them human characteristics. So Ah. it's interesting. But if we think about them being not stressed and living naturally, calmly, um, then they're typically like, uh, depending on what species of octopus, I'm just referring to a giant Pacific octopus. This is where I get really technical. (laughs) It's okay. I'm learning so much about um, something. I'm just shooting out facts. Um, Typically, it's like a light red color. So. And they, yeah. and they change the it's, it's Isn't it amazing how, how nature is like created all of yeah. us differently to um, to adapt? Um, I saw a lot of people when you put that LinkedIn post commenting, mm. congratulating, being really happy with your mm. achievement. Um, and LinkedIn is like a fabulous place for like the work related stuff. But if I was to take you outside of LinkedIn, what do you do? What's the mm. Marie that we don't see on LinkedIn or you haven't posted about yet? Maybe. Yeah. What do you do outside of that more corporate work environment? I love sports. I've always been a bit of a tomboy. (laughs) My primary sport is beach volleyball. So I play beach volleyball, competitive doubles, um, at least three to four days a week. If I can swing it when I'm not traveling. So we're very dedicated. We play as early as 6 a.m. or after work until dark. The weather is on your side. The weather is on my side. Not like Weymouth. It's not like Weymouth. (laughs) When I was living in England, I did play beach volleyball. It was like 20 to 30 mile per hour winds. Wow. And I played on the UK beach tour. That is commitment on the sport. super fun. It was, you know, I played in the wind and the rain. Uh, I switched to indoor when I I lived in the UK. It it tests your motivation. If Mm. if the surroundings and, and the environment are... Yeah. That cold and windy, it really yeah. tests your motivation. But you have three layers on. It's exactly. a little intense. Yeah, exactly. It's not very beach volleyball, yeah. is it? <laughs> you're, you're very dedicated if you have three to four layers. I'm committed to the sport and yeah. my practice. Yeah. So the California version of that, totally different. Yeah. 6 a.m. practice. Yeah. 
And how long have you been doing that? I for? love it. For over 10 years now. Is it is it your recharge plug-in point in it terms of your well-being? Is. It is. Just being near the ocean for me, you mm. know. If I'm not playing beach volleyball, I'm paddleboarding out on the ocean. I surf in the summer. Um, I'm a warm water surfer. It's pretty cold in the California water <laughs> in the winter, I'll tell you what. I um, dipped my toes in the Pacific yesterday. Did you? I wouldn't go in fully. No. It's, <laughs> it's about as warm as it is in Weymouth. It's oh, like it's a little cold. bit warmer, maybe 12 degrees Celsius. Yeah, it's cold. <laughs> That's cold. I'm, yeah. I'm Mediterranean, so it has yeah. to be 30 degrees yeah. for me to go in. Fair. Oh, yeah. You're from Greece. <laughs> it doesn't get warm until September and even in, then. In California? Yeah. Mm. It's like can get in the 20s, so in like 70. Bearable bearable yeah yeah i can surf without a wetsuit or a short suit a shorty with no legs okay. um september october but but, but the sun just... is warming and you don't get the yeah. hail well, and the, the sun's wind. out and it's beautiful and yeah. it's just really nice so yeah nature for me is my recharge for sure so nature and volleyball and if if i was to say to you after a difficult challenging mm -hmm. kind of full-on day a lot mm -hmm. going on a lot of things you had to handle um what would make you happy instantly? Mm. What would be the one thing that mm. I could do to kind of bring a smile back on your face? I would definitely need a little bit of alone time, mm. even though I'm quite extroverted um, and sociable. I'm becoming a little bit more introverted as I get older. Um, and as we speak to people all day, I need a little bit of recharge. So I just like to go for a walk and listen mm. to reggae music, take nice. my dog out. I love reggae. I'm a bit of a hippie. You know, I'm very much. You taught me that California. yesterday, which I'm still trying to Shaka. practice. <laughs> yeah. Yep. What does it mean? What does it stand for? It's just for? like hang. It's like the surfers, like ah. hang, like you know, hang tough kind of thing. Where I do a peace sign. So I'm, I'm still practicing, happy. and I'm not yeah. in my surfing. It's called like today. a shaka. You're like shaka. <laughs> so go for a walk, Richard. Reggae music on. Yeah, reggae music on, and that would reset you. It would definitely help. And then a nice whiskey in the evening <laughs> would definitely help as well. Fantastic. Yeah, balance, right? Absolutely. Um, in all of your different roles that you've done, um, has there been one that in particular mostly mm. stretched you, challenged you, but now that you look back, you go, mm -hmm. actually, that was a pretty cool learning opportunity mm -hmm. and it really evolved me as a leader. Mm -hmm. Was there a role or a moment in a role or a time period yeah. in a role? Absolutely, my time overseeing the European region, mm. my understanding um, of the different cultures was mm -hmm. something that I really had to dive into and adapt um, and just to work with different leaders and you know the way that I would communicate with our French teams was mm. different than the German teams learning about all the different cultures the works councils in Germany um, and just you know the cultural you know things that we expect in Asia as well when I did my project in Japan all of these areas I really had to learn um, not judge, just mm. be more open-minded, be much more flexible. Mm. Um, so in some cases, I was put in some really un uncomfortable positions and I just kind of had to adapt. And uh, I learned a lot around that time. So I definitely enjoyed it. How do you learn about culture? So somebody listening to this might be going, oh my God, I'm in mm -hmm. that place now. Mm -hmm. I'm in it today. Yeah. I'm, I'm dealing with people and I'm building relationships yeah. with people who are fundamentally different to me, have yeah. come from a different background. How, how did you mm -hmm. tackle that? What, what can yeah. we share that will possibly help other yeah. people? I was really fortunate to have colleagues in these regions that were willing to mm -hmm. share with me some of the cultural norms. There were some, there were some really good books out there as well for specifically challenging or more conservative cultures. 
um, especially me as a female, young female American leader, going to some of these conversations with um, different leaders mm. in some of you know the different cultures, like Italy. It was definitely unique mm -hmm. and interesting. Um, but I had to, like I say, just kind of understand, not judge, and uh, just open my mind to just understanding and understanding what motivates them as well. And how can I support you? And that's really what I'm here to do. So, um, whereas in American culture, you know, we can be a little bit more dominating. Um, in, in some of the European cultures, I had to kind of set back a little bit and learn and watch a little bit more. Um, and then see where I could insert myself and remove barriers or roadblocks and assist the team to mm. gain trust. Once the trust was there, then I could have an opinion, you know. Mm. But I needed at least five to ten minutes face-to-face -face with some of these individuals in person, not just on the phone, for that. them to understand where I'm coming from um, and see how I'm there to support them. And then they would kind of... Open up. open up from there and absolutely and be more welcoming absolutely. to the collaboration absolutely i i love that journey of you, you the first point you said was how can i support you mm -hmm. so you went into yeah. the conversation not with my agenda my objectives my things but right. how can i support you right. then you said about building an environment of trust and that kind of psychological safety we talk about a lot in yeah. high performing teams and, and teams that really smash it out of the park mm -hmm. And then that face-to-face -face time and, and how valuable that is. Now that you talk about it, it sounds very conscious and very structured. When you were in it, was it just the gut feel that was driving you or did you know exactly the steps to, to follow? I don't think I knew exactly the steps mm -hmm. to follow until I was able to kind of you know, experience that and um, make some decisions that kind of changed the projection of how I was moving in my career. Um, but I think generally I like to connect with mm. people quite quickly. So I just need five minutes in a room with someone just to have some one-on-one -on -one time and and just to be, like I said, open-minded and, and learn about them personally. Yeah. You know? So it definitely makes a difference. Was that always a superpower, like a skill mm. you had and you were good at it and you knew it and, and you were you know, you, using it kind of unconsciously, mm -hmm. like you, you didn't have to make effort mm -hmm. to, to bring it up. What, was that something I you were good at or was, was that something that you built? It was something that I wasn't aware of when I was younger. I was a little bit introverted. In a room with people, I would kind of sit back. Yeah. Now I can walk into a room full of people that I don't know and come out with everyone's phone numbers and be their best friends. Um, but it was something that I started to develop more and more in my 20s as I started to gain a little bit more confidence in myself and my abilities. Um, people tell me that I, you know, form relationships quite quickly and that I can be charismatic, um, but I'm also quite direct. So I definitely have a personality that not everyone <laughs> is always going to love, but I have to kind of mute that in certain scenarios and in different cultures. So, but yeah. What did that all of that experience with working in that European region mm -hmm. with all these different cultures and backgrounds and you know, approaches to hierarchy and female leadership. Mm -hmm. What did it teach you? It taught me a lot about my communication mm. style and my leadership style. And it's just, you know, a lot of internal learnings there, really. Um, like I say, I'm quite, I have a directional leadership style, which doesn't always land. work or land, like you say, in, in different cultures. And so I did have to adjust that. And speaking to others in a way that they could understand if English was not their first language, being very clear and direct without being too complex, sometimes simplifying uh, complex problems around mm -hmm. animal welfare, animal care can be, you know, specialized. 
um, and making that simple from a business perspective um, was something that I really had to work on and I still am working on. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a journey, right? Absolutely. You've become aware of it. You're working on it. You're learning every day. Yeah. And then um, kind of you, you keep testing and learning as you go. Yeah. Um, it, I, I find it um, fascinating sometimes when I um, coach female leaders or speak to them or when they attend um, some of our training programs. And I see this um, feeling and sense of that kind of imposter syndrome that mm. we call that self-doubt yeah. um, and a lot of leaders have mentioned it as something that's like an ongoing thing um, have you ever felt it yourself and if you have how how did you deal with it because mm -hmm. I I feel like all of us have had moments of it at some point in our careers but yeah. I I'm a firm believer that when you are conscious about it and you do something about it that's when it shifts yeah tell me about if you ever had any experience with that. I absolutely have, probably in every job I've ever had, <laughs> if I'm being quite honest with you. Um, it definitely can, you know, uh, come up to it's, the surface. Absolutely, in certain scenarios, mm. especially in a heavily male-dominated industry. And if I think back, um, I was just 30 years old when I was first hired as a curator, and I was the youngest curator in the group, and there were only a few other women in, in the team. Very male-dominated Very male-dominated as a whole. In general. Now that is shifting. Mm. Um, now that is shifting towards, we have a majority of female Aquarius, and I think the last time I did the count were 50-50 male-female in the Brilliant. curatorial scope within North America at the moment, which is really great to have different viewpoints um, from everyone. But I've definitely felt the imposter syndrome over the years. And I use my colleagues to, you know, discuss, you know, my feelings and just to help me. So you open up, you share it. Absolutely. Absolutely share it. Yeah. And that helps you process, it move does. on, gain that confidence. Does. Yeah. Even to this day, I mean, I still have mentors and colleagues that I call up you know, just to help me work through problems or if I'm feeling really stuck or demotivated. Um, you know, it's just really nice to have someone to have a sounding board and who knows my background and my history and isn't just going to be like, you're amazing, you know, you're doing great. It's like, guys, give me some real direct feedback. So you want it to be authentic I want it to be real. Than... Yeah, I don't need you to like be all fluffy and tell me how great I am. Because <laughs> that's me really not truth. how I operate either, <laughs> you know what I mean? So you had to kind of have to gain a little bit of a tough skin and that can be a little bit more challenging and it's hard I mean, we're all you know humans and so it can be it can be challenging in specific meetings with senior leadership teams and you know but you yeah. just open up about it and yeah I, it's almost like um there's this thing that they say sometime in therapy about if you have a, a limiting belief in your head by just writing it down mm. it's almost like 50 percent you've tackled it yeah and i feel like your your process of that is you just talking about it out loud yeah. to somebody you trust. You're probably right. And that's your kind of, well, it's out loud mm -hmm. and out there now, so right. we're, we're addressing it. Right. It doesn't become this monster thought that it's just kind of bothering us in right. the background. Absolutely. And not, you know, spontaneously reacting in the moment, taking a minute mm. to just think about it. Um, take, a, take a little bit of a walk, have a chat with someone. With reggae. With reggae, and then I'm back to Zen. <laughs> a bit of meditative yeah, moment. So I'm still working on that. You know, sometimes it's hard to not be. Uh, one of our influence coaches said that I can be quite strong, like an oak tree, and I'm not moving, but I need to be a little bit more like a palm tree. Or a bamboo. Yeah. <laughs> yes. 
moving in the wind, just being a little flexible. And so I'm like working on that. Like what is truly important to me and what is yeah. worth pushing back on? What's non-negotiable? Right. And what are some of the things that I could compromise, flex? Absolutely. And what are the non-negotiables? So what, the way you work, the, mm. the way you collaborate, the environment that you want to create, yeah. the teams that you're mm -hmm. leading, what is absolutely a must-have that mm. there's no, no negotiation yeah. on that? Well, it's actually relatively easy to answer that in a way that we have such high standards for what we do in animal welfare. Mm. So everything I do comes back to that. animal welfare and well-being. Um, and so obviously that's highly important and that is why we have visitors coming to our yeah. sea life aquarium. So um, one way I can support that is by getting all of our facilities accredited by the AZA, the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. So we have seven out of ten of our facilities already accredited, two more in the coming year and a half to two years. That's like a quality stamp. That is a huge gold stamp That's to amazing. share that we are in the top 10% of zoos and aquariums in the world. Globally. Correct. Wow. And in Merlin standards are right up there with these standards, but the AZA is looking at our business operations as a whole. So everything that we do, I can look to and be supported by the accreditation, um, you know, expectations, which is really, really great. So. Everything we do around welfare, around research, around um, conservation, you know, which I'd love to share with you what we're working on, um, business practices, health and safety, and staff. And everything that I do is to support our teams. So I'm always going to do the best I can to kind of, you know, hold the flag and support them ultimately. With, with that quality framework in Correct. mind and, and, and uh, being true and honest to that. Right. And the teams themselves, you know, around their development. Curators are a special group. But what does a curator do? do? Yeah. So I think a lot of people... If, might... I, if I was to come in and second for a week, what uh -huh. would you get me to do? I don't have marine biology <laughs> knowledge. You would have to teach sure. me everything. Um, but I, I love animals yeah. and I would love to experience it for, for however long you would put up with me. What would I experience in yeah. that role? What would I do? Absolutely. We should definitely set something. <laughs> I'm up for another trip. Yeah. <laughs> so curators, a lot of people know what a museum curator yes. or an art curator does. Yeah. Right? They might design exhibits. Yeah. Similarly, we do that with live animals. Okay. But that comes with a complex understanding of water chemistry, life support systems, so all the filters, filtration systems that goes into keeping those animals alive. Um, the conservation around these animals, where these animals come from. Animal if they're rare species, is right. that what we Right, and mean? the stories and how we're going to educate okay. and inspire guests and showcase that on exhibit. Um, Animal disease, so we have a veterinary team, so understanding, you know, pathogens, how to treat it, how yeah. to treat it diet, nutrition of the animals. What they eat. Yep. Compatibility, who eats what, who can live with who. Oh. Yeah, so that can be, you imagine there's like 25,000 species of fish alone. That, that amount is, is like, it's, it's yeah. crazy to think about the detail and the knowledge that you have, you have to have yeah. on each one of them yeah. to ensure that the combinations are right, the diet is right. right. You treat them when they're sick. Right. The habitat is right. They're providing the right enrichment for them. The wow. training where needed. A lot of fish are very highly intelligent. We train all of our sharks and our stingrays, groupers, lots of our big fishes. They're very food motivated. So there's a lot of knowledge. A lot of species are food motivated. A lot of, including us, I think right? it's a global phenomenon. <laughs> definitely. Food definitely helps. So, yeah, that there's is a lot. 
crazy amount of knowledge. So would a curator then come from the kind of background that you have academically, like a marine biology type? They would. You would start as an Aquarius, like I did, with typically a four-year degree in marine biology or mm -hmm. science. We like a scientific kind of a background, so you have an understanding of main concepts. And then we'd like, you know, a few you years trained. of experience, yeah. if possible. If yeah. not, then we have a nice training program. Um, and you might start out as a part-time Aquarist or a husbandry assistant, and then you would move your way up to lead Aquarist or senior Aquarist, Aquarist one, Aquarist two, before you hit lead Aquarist, and then into a potential curator role where most of those curators have about 10 years of experience. So, In everything yeah. marine biology. Everything marine biology, usually four or five years of experience managing staff as well. Wow. And uh, how many people would a curator lead in terms of the direct reports? It depends on the size of the site. Uh -huh. So it could be 25 or 30 if you're in Sydney Aquarium where you have a diversity of species, maybe um, some seals or sea lions that need special care. Um, but typically in a sea life, like a regular size yeah. sea life, they might only have seven or eight biologists, sometimes smaller, sometimes five or six, depending on the size of the sea life. Here, my team is 12 people that take care of our aquarium. So all 12 report to you? All 12 report to the curator, and then the curator reports to me. Wow. Mm -hmm. It's it's a very multifaceted, complex role in terms of knowledge, background, experience, people management, yeah. leadership. Um, what, what do you do as their leader to kind of keep mm -hmm. growing them, keep developing mm -hmm. them, creating the environment for them to be just bloody amazing at yeah. what they do, Dave? Yeah, culture is huge. So... There's a few facets to my job, like I was saying. So one facet is that I am the general manager, ultimately, of our Sea Life Aquarium here in California. So everything falls under your responsibility. Correct. And I report into the senior leadership team here, which is fantastic. They give me a huge amount of freedom to just do what we need to do. And so team culture locally is extremely important for us. Um, we love diversity. Um, I love to hear everyone's viewpoints. So, so we have a really diverse and inclusive team at my facility with a bunch of very, very passionate um, animal care people and education team members. We're always doing fun team building activities. This afternoon, they're going out to do a beach clean together. I love a beach clean. So love it. We're always doing beach clean. So we're, you know, having my own facility allows me to have real ownership yeah. over a team and an aquarium and a collection of animals, and we just have a really great time. Um, but I'm constantly trying to mentor and support them and give them opportunities for succumbance. Exactly. And then the other facet of my role um, is as the senior curator for Sea Life North America, overseeing the nine other sea lifes that we have in the US. Where do we have them? Teach me. All of them? Okay, so we have California's one, Phoenix, Arizona is two, Dallas, Texas, three, all over the, the country. San Antonio, um, Minnesota, Kansas City, Charlotte, New Jersey, Orlando. And you, you travel to all of them. I don't know if I counted, but we have 10. Wow. I'll travel to all of them um, and work with the curators. The curators kind of dotted line report to me, and I act as the specialist business partner to the divisional director for North America and the regional directors below him to support them in making business decisions. Um, around the sea lives. So it's great fun. What a brilliant job you have. Mm. And the other side is conservation? 
And I also work on conservation. So my what, department. What, what does that do? Yeah. I mean, I know from Rob being at the yeah. induction, but that was a very select group of leaders. So for everybody else, Absolutely. what does conservation mean? What, what do we do as a company in, in that field? So much. And there's so much more to do. And I'm so excited for what we're doing here in the future. So um, CWE, our division, focuses, the C is on conservation and leading a strategy of conservation um, throughout our 55 plus aquariums. In North America specifically, we have a few priority projects that we're working on that are super exciting that we're going to make really big um, imp impacts around the globe just with what we're doing um, around shark work. So. We're involved with the AZA, like I mentioned before, yep. the Association of Zoos and Aquariums has a SAFE program called Saving Animals from Extinction around sharks. Um, the work that we're doing with sea turtles around the globe is amazing. We have so many rescued sea turtles, but this year we're applying for some grant funding money to resource our cold stun sea turtle event. So when it gets really, really chilly in Dallas, Texas, um, specifically, we've brought in over 20 animals, about 20, it might be a little bit less, that we've actually rehabilitated and released. And saved them from. And saved them from potentially, they were very emaciated, cold yeah, weather. Yeah. Um, they just, you know, they get really, really chilly and we bring them in and support. There's a lot of resource. Yeah. So bringing in our teams to help support the Dallas team with future events. So really great hands-on in the wild conservation. Wow. Super exciting. Um, we have sea turtle rescue centers all over the US. It's just really, really great to showcase that. The work that we're doing with coral reefs is really exciting as well. So in North America alone, we're gonna have up to five of our sea lives working on a Florida coral reef track project uh, that's sponsored again by the AZA, the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. And we're actually gonna be holding animals and helping with gene banking to potentially release these animals into the wild wow. in Florida wow. for this specific project. But there's coral reef projects all around the world that we're involved in as well. So you, you're saving the environment? We are You're in the process trying, of, yeah, yeah, it's really exciting stuff. So it's really great to take a strategy to collaborate and to really make such huge impacts together. So just one sea life feels like they can't do as much, but when we have 10 or 55 around the world, That's amazing. the impact we can make is significant. Three very diverse parts of your role and mm. a lot of interesting things happening that I think when you talk about it, just I, I get really, um, you know, I get all of that influence and that vibe mm. and that passion that you have about your role. Thank you. And we have a brand new chapter in Merlin with a new CEO that's mm -hmm. come in and his three B's and kind of strategic direction. Mm -hmm. If you were to kind of visualize what that would look like in terms of the sea lives and the conservation and mm -hmm. all the things that we do, what would you like to see in the next couple of years? I would just like to see us continuing on the trajectory that we're on around our focuses on, you know, displays presentation. I mean, essentially what we're doing here is inspiring our guests to protect the world's waters, yes. which is exactly what we do. And we have motivated and passionate, you know, teams around the world. So just continuing to improve and raise the bar around animal welfare and how we're educating our guests is really truly what I'm excited to see. And um, it's just great to be part of the team, so. It is. Closing the podcast, mm. um, if you could go back in time and remember when you went into that university to study marine biology mm -hmm. and you could advise that person back then a few years ago, what would be the one thing you would tell yourself? Mm. You're 20. 21 year old self the one thing that i could tell mm. myself 
knowing the art of the possible that you've got now right. in your life and all the beautiful places yeah, you've been? Such a great question. What would you tell you know, your younger self? Just to go for it and take risks. And I did a lot of that, but there were other opportunities that maybe I could have taken, but I think that everything kind of happens for a reason. Mm. But you need to go for it, you know? Just try. You know, you might not feel like you're completely prepared or ready for a position or a role, but put yourself out there. Dive in. Dive in, literally. Literally like dive that. in. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.